Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Good morning. My name is uh, Parker, one of the pastors here, and today's scripture reading is from Philippians 1. 27 through 30, and it says this, just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you haven't already, take your, I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn to the letter to the Philippians. And uh, before we uh, dive in, I'm just going to have a moment of transparency here. Last time we had uh, church in the park, I preached, and I, it was very hard for me to preach. I was very distracted. You know, there's cars. There's, I think last time there was like a plastic bag that literally like rolled across the front like a tumbleweed, and it was just very distracting. So what I want to do is I want to start us off and just pray Against it. The good news is that we don't need to be in a building to worship. We can worship here in spirit and in truth. Um, but also, this, is, uh, this setting is not ideal to, to keep us focused. So I want to pray against distraction. Um, I want to pray for, for clarity, but not just so that you can, you know, listen to a sermon, but more so so that we can, we can feast on the gospel. We can fix our eyes on Christ because... The last thing we need is more distractions because I know the last seven days, life is sometimes just a constant distraction. And the enemy wants us to keep focusing on things that are not above, but things that are on earth. And so uh, I just want to take a moment and and pray that the Lord would move in us uh, as we just sang about his goodness and his glory. uh, And we're going to hear about his goodness and his glory from Philippians uh, let's let, let's pray. And actually, if you wouldn't mind, if, if you're comfortable, if you could just extend your hands out, maybe just set them on your lap. But as a posture of openness, as a posture of uh, a physical expression of an inward uh, heart posture of just openness, ready to receive from the Lord what he has. So let's pray together. Father, we love you and we trust you and we know that your ways are higher than our own. And we know, Lord, that at the end of the day, you will always be magnified. We ask that we would have a, a diligence, a, a focus, a, uh, a spirit of, of unity among us, that we would, we would glorify your name, and that we can claim with Paul that um, you would be magnified in our bodies, in our minds, in our hearts. Father, as we look at uh, what it means to live worthy of the gospel, I ask that you would convict us, that I wouldn't try to. I ask that you would speak that I wouldn't attempt to. And um, Father, I I do ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes, my eyes, our eyes, our hearts, our spirits, 
our ears so that we can see, hear, believe, think, and taste your goodness. We ask all these things in your son's name and by the power of the spirit. Amen. One of the main themes of uh, Philippians that we've been exploring is this theme of selflessness, of humility. We call it the way up is down. In this letter to the Philippians, Paul is writing from prison, and he's writing and he's exploring and explaining what it means to be a Christian, right? Like, so now that, now that you've been adopted into Christ, now what? Now that you are together with other believers who believe the same things uh, as Christ with you, now what? Now that you have, like, you know, given everything for the cause of Jesus, for the cause of the gospel, what does your life look like? And it's interesting, over the last month or two, I've probably had five or six conversations with you guys, with different people in the congregation, um, you know, at different times, not related to one another, about essentially this question of like, okay, well, so, so, so now what? Like, I, I believe, I, I trust, I've given everything for, for the gospel, but what is my, what is my life? Is there more than that? Because to be a Christian means that we have to have implications for for our lives, right? If not, if you just believe and don't do anything about it, it doesn't have implications in your life, then we're no better than the demons who believe, right? And they believe everything. A demon would pass a theology exam because they believe that Jesus is alive, but they tremble. So as a Christian then, we ha- it has to be more than just belief. And, and the reason that it's, it's sometimes difficult to see how the gospel affects our everyday, our Tuesday mornings, our Thursday afternoons, our work, the reason it's difficult to see that is because of the temptation to compartmentalize right? There's this temptation in life to compartmentalize our hearts, our minds, our emotions, our, our wills, our spirits. What does that look like? We have these different boxes or um, categories in our hearts or our, our actual lives. So, you know, for example, you take, you know, work. Well, this is my work life, my work box. And so you, whenever you're at work, you think about work, you have certain relationships at work, you have certain emotions regarding work, things like that. But then you can close that box and you can move on to your, you know, life or your family. And there's that compartment of your life in your heart. And you act a certain way. You believe certain things. You speak a certain. And then same with leisure and play and hobbies. And we actually end up celebrating this, this type of uh, compartmentalizing. We, we celebrate people who have a good work-life balance, right? Somebody who can say like, okay, well, I have work over here. But then when I'm not at work, I'm going to close that part of my life. And I'm going to open this part of my life over here. And this is... This is my family life or my leisure life. And by the way, that's a good thing. Having a work-life balance is a good thing. I'm not saying it's not a good thing. God has created us to do work. God has created us to rest. We need to have a good work-life balance. But the point is, is that if we're not careful, then that compartmentalizing that we do in life can actually creep into our life in Christ. And if we're not careful, we can actually start to compartmentalize the gospel So that way we have this part of our life where we focus on these things and work on these things and this part of our life. And then over here, we also have the gospel and my Christian life and something that I I act this way, I think this way, I have these certain thoughts. And if we're not careful, then Christ himself will just become another bucket in in our hearts of what we have and what we do. And this is what we talked about last week when Paul, last week Paul said the famous line, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Well, Paul didn't say that. We said it because we were reading Paul. Paul said it a long, long time ago. 
But we, we, we talked about this, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And we asked you to fill in that blank. To live is blank. What would you be honest with yourself? If you're honest with yourselves, what would you fill in that blank? To live is blank. Now think about the last seven days, where you were a week ago to where you are right now. What was your life? What was your life surrounded with? What was living for you? Was it anxiety? Was it stress? Was it distraction? Was it anger? Was it a little bit impatience? Was it frustration? Was it busyness and hurriedness? Was it lust? Was it overindulgence? Was it dissatisfaction, wanting something else rather than being pleased with where you are right now? Or was it love? Was it an otherworldly peace? Was it a genuine patience? Was it a satisfying self-control over your mind and your body? Was it a rich kindness to others? Freely, uh, freely have we received, so freely we give. Was, it, was your life Christ himself? Because if your life was the former, anxiety, stress, frustration, dissatisfaction, then that means that there are still some parts of our hearts that are compartmentalized. There are still some parts of our hearts that are not relinquishing control over to Christ and his lordship, that are not claiming Jesus is Lord. That means that there are some parts of our hearts, some parts of our hearts we can say, yes, to live is Christ, but then other parts of our hearts are to live is me. To live is me. And when, when we say to live is me, that means what? That means that my desire and will takes the throne of my heart. And then because desire is infinite, nothing I do can satisfy that and nothing anybody else do, can do can satisfy that. And so that leads to the anxiety, the stress, the frustration, the lust, the dissatisfaction, the overindulgence. Desire is infinite, which means it needs an infinite solution. And if we cannot say to live as Christ from the deepest parts of our hearts, and if Christ doesn't transcend all those categories, all those buckets, all those silos, then we will forever be reaping the fruits of the flesh and not the fruits of the spirit. We will forever be disunified because my will is above the will and the desire of others. We will forever be putting ourselves above other people and viewing any sort of inconvenience or suffering as something to avoid rather than a gift from God. And this concept, this idea, this, this truth is exactly what Paul is addressing in our text today. We're looking at four verses from 27 to 30, and this is the start of Paul's central passage in Philippians. Philippians is structured in a way where it has a peak, it has a kind of a climax, and it's chapter 1, verse 27, all the way through chapter 2, verse 18. This is the thesis, if you will, of the entire letter to the Philippians. And Paul, last week, in the middle and near the end of chapter 1, discussed his situation, if you remember, Paul's in prison. He's in Roman prison, and he's about to be tried. And uh, he talks about he's rejoicing because, ironically, even though Paul is in chains, the gospel is freer than ever, right? The gospel is going around. The entire Roman uh, guard is now believing in the gospel, and Paul's excited about it. Paul's rejoicing. He's also rejoicing because he knows that he is going to be saved. He will be saved because of his suffering. His suffering is going to lead to his salvation. And then he has this little like kind of um, thinking out loud section where he's like, I, I don't, I'm going to glorify God whether I live or whether I die. For me, living is Christ, dying is gain. But I don't know what I should do. And Paul said last week, he said that he prefers to die because to depart and be with Christ is much better than, than being alive. So he, he literally says, he's like, I would actually rather be with Christ. But he knows that 
it's better for the Philippians that he stays alive. So what did Paul do there? Paul put the needs of others above the needs of himself, right? Paul did not look to his own interests, but rather he looked to the interests of others. And he said, actually, for your guys' sake, I'm going to remain alive. I'm going to stay with you so that your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound. And that's where we get to the first uh, part of verse 27 today. So look down at your Bibles in verse 27, and we're going to walk through this uh, together. He starts off by saying in verse 27, just one thing, just one thing. Some of your translations, if you have a ESV or NIV, it might say the word only, only this. Now, this word in Greek is used to compare two things all the time. You know, we, we use this a lot. Well, not only this, but also this. Well, not only this, but also this. Later, Paul will say, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. But here in this moment, Paul is saying, no, I'm not comparing two things. I'm telling you that the most important thing, only. It's like, this is like the thesis statement of the entire letter. And Paul always has a lot to say, right? I mean, Paul very rarely boils, the point, boils it down to one point. I mean, have you read the book of Romans? I mean, it's just like run-on sentences and you need a flow chart to understand what Paul is saying. And it's just like, can you slow down, Paul, please? Because I can't, I can't follow you mentally with this. But here, he's, he doesn't do that. He says, hey guys, this is it. This is the point. And what does he say? He says, just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is the first command in the letter to the Philippians. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, quick aside. Again, if you have the ESV or NIV, it reads a little bit differently here. It might say something like, let your manner of life be worthy of, or conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's, a, there's good reason for that. We don't have time to get into that right now for the reason why there's a, a difference between a bunch of the translations. But, shameless plug, later this week, I'm going to put up a little mini episode uh, on our podcast. Um, where you can, so you can find it later this week. It'll be under the study. It'll say the study notes, Philippians 128. And so I'm going to explain the differences between the, uh, the translations there. But for CSB, Christian Standard Bible, it says as citizens of heaven. So what does Paul mean when he says as citizens of heaven? Well, we need to understand citizenship back then so that we can understand what he means because it's not the same as what a citizen is today. Citizenship in the first century when Rome was, uh, when Paul was, where Paul was in Rome, it wasn't just a place you lived. It was actually a much more involved partnership. So citizenship then was a involved partnership between the individual and the community. If you were a citizen, that means that you were intentionally partnering with the city, the area, the region, and you wanted to uh, give, you wanted to partner with them so that you could get the best and so that the empire could get the best. Citizenship today is pretty much like up to you for how involved or uninvolved you want to be. You know what I'm saying? Like there are a few things you have to do as a citizen like that you have to do. Like you have to pay taxes. You have to, I don't know, have a driver's license in order to drive a car. But you don't have to run for office to be a citizen, right? You don't have to be on the city council to be a citizen. You don't even have to be on the People of Ankeny Facebook page to be a citizen of Ankeny, which is sometimes pretty entertaining. But all that to say, we can be as involved or uninvolved as we want to be in our citizenship. Not so with Rome. 
If you were a citizen of Rome, that means that you were partnering with Rome, with the community. It means that you were involved, that you had certain duties and responsibilities. And part of these duties and responsibilities were that you supported Rome. You supported them with your money, your time, your thinking. You uh, adhered to her values. You upheld her values. And the values of that culture, the values of Rome, were uh, they, they valued consumerism. They valued pursuing status. They valued self-promotion. They valued up and to the right. They valued disunity. They valued rage. They blamed everybody else for their problems. They valued violence and oppression. It was a culture of oppressing the poor, the orphan, the widow, the homeless. It was a culture where arrogance was celebrated and narcissism was justified. And it was a culture where they actually thought their city was immortal. Rome, the eternal city. Those were the values of the culture of that day, the values of the society of that day. And so to be a Roman citizen meant to uphold those values, to participate in those values. And Paul says what? As citizens of heaven, you don't partner with a culture whose values lead to death and destruction. You don't do that. You partner with a culture whose values are not of this world, whose values are, we're, we're citizens in a culture that value lowliness. That's what it means, to, that's, what, that's what a Christian values. A Christian values, and we are citizens of a culture that values selflessness, that values unity, not disunity, that values humility, not arrogance, that values neighborliness, that values mutuality, peace, love. That is what it means to be a citizen of heaven. So it means to partner with a culture and a community who gets their values from the one true Lord, not Caesar, the one true crucified and risen Lord. By the way, this is where compartmentalizing rears its ugly head. Because I've heard, and I'm sure you guys have heard this too. Well, I've heard this a hundred times. Well, I'm a, I'm a dual citizen. I have citizenship in, on earth, and I also have citizenship in heaven. That is not what Paul is saying here. First of all, Paul doesn't say anything about being a Roman citizen. In fact, later in this letter, he says, I'm actually a citizen of heaven. Paul himself was a citizen of Rome, which is a very uh, high feat considering that only 13% of people in Rome were actually Roman citizens. He could have flaunted, I'm a citizen of heaven and a citizen of Rome. He doesn't do that. Second, citizenship back then does not mean the same thing as citizenship today. Like I said, it's more than just where you live. It's an intentional partnership with a culture and a set of values. And third, and finally, and I think most importantly, to say that you have this dual citizenship is to compartmentalize your Christian life. It is to compartmentalize Christ into one area of your life instead of, him surpassing all areas of your life. We have a new set of values, a new humanity. And if we compartmentalize the gospel, we end up turning Christianity into a private religion rather than a public relationship with the Lord and with others. To live as citizens of heaven means to partner with the Lord, the crucified and risen Lord Jesus, and his body, us, the people, following his value system and his way into life into new creation. We are a different people, completely different people, with a different set of standards, rather than partnering with any other value system or cultural norm of this day. He continues on. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
What does living your life worthy of the gospel of Christ look like? This is the first command. What does it look like? How do we live our entire lives worthy of the gospel of Christ? There are three things that Paul says, uh, that Paul explains on what it means to live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. The first way to live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ is unity. Unity. Look at the end of verse 27, or the middle, I guess, of verse 27. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, Paul's basically saying, I hope to see you again, but I might not. I will hear about you that you are what? Standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. The first way you know that you're living your life worthy of the gospel of Christ is through unity. And what does unity require? Humility. Selflessness. You cannot be arrogant and be unified with another person. Look at any friendship or relationship or marriage that has broken. What does unity require? Selflessness, a downward mobility. It's, it requires the needs of others as greater than the needs of the self. It requires not looking to our own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Just look at this unifying language. He says, I'll hear that you are standing firm. This is athletic and military imagery where you're actually literally linking arms with somebody. You're standing firm with them. You have made a line. You're linking arms. You're standing firm. How? In one spirit. We have the same thinking. We have the same heartbeat. We have the same values. In one accord. This is why Paul drove a Honda, because he kept telling everybody to be in one accord. Just making sure you guys are paying attention. <laughs> uh, in one accord, right? We have the same mind. We're in tune with one another. We're in harmony with one another. That's what it means to live in one accord. I had to. I'm so sorry. Actually, I didn't have to. I just wanted to. <clears throat> Contending together for the faith of the gospel, fighting together, striving together, working together for the faith of the gospel. And what's interesting here is that we are not called just to believe the gospel. We are called to become the gospel in our relationships with others. When we believe the gospel, that's one thing. Our hearts are transformed from the inside out. But we are actually now called to become the gospel. We primarily show the world what living as a Christian looks like through our unity. The first way that Paul says to live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ is unity. Unity for the gospel. The second thing, second way that we know we're living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ is courage. Courage. Look at verse 28. Not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them but of your salvation. And this is from God. The second way we know we're living a life worthy of the Christ is by our, our courage. He says, he says, don't be frightened in any way by your opponents. Now, the opponents here, let's take a minute and talk about this. The opponents here, uh, at this point in time, they were not experiencing yet like full-fledged persecution of like martyrdom yet. They will experience that eventually, but not yet. Sometimes they'd be in prison for their uh, for their life in Christ, like Paul was and like Peter and them were. But in Philippi specifically, it wasn't full-fledged like, you know, they're knocking at your door and, and trying to kill you. So what was the opponent? What was the opposition? Well, we don't know exactly what it is, but it's probably something more along the lines of like lo losing your jobs, um, maybe losing your land, being a social outcast, uh, economic disadvantages like higher taxes, you were taxed higher. And the reason for this is because Christians refused to participate in like the weekly worship practices of the imperial, you know, court, cult and the imperial worship practices. And also they refused to pay taxes to pagan temples. 
So like you had to pay taxes to all these temples and the Christians are like, yeah, we're not, we're not doing that. And so they also refused to participate in the sexual promiscuity and the sexual ethic of their day. And so because of that, they were being oppressed economically. They were losing their jobs. They were social outcasts. And now Paul says another way to live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ is not being frightened by those people who seem to be taking away the things that you care about and the things that you love. Okay, and we today... <clears throat> we're not experiencing the same opposition and persecution as they were. I think that's, I think that's pretty clear. We're not, we are not. And at the same time, it's no secret that our culture and society is rapidly changing. You look at 10, 15, 20, even five years ago, our culture is very different than it was then. We are starting to experience, starting to experience opposition, whether it's the loss of a friend because you wouldn't uh, participate in immoral activities, whether it's you didn't get that promotion because you refused to be unethical in, in your work, whether it's you lost a business deal because you didn't participate in gossip and slander, whether you're a social outcast because of your sexual ethic and belief in God's ordination of marriage and sexuality, whatever it is, we're starting to feel the effects of this. Not anything like what the Philippians were experiencing yet, but we are starting to feel that. And Paul says, what about that? Paul says, don't be frightened by that. I wonder, are we frightened by our opponents today? Are we afraid of where the culture is headed? Are we afraid of these ideologies of the world that they're going to somehow take away something that we have? Do we talk more about the agendas of the far left or the far right more than we talk about the agenda of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because if so, that might mean that we are frightened by our opponents. I don't, I don't really know what to do right now. <clears throat> They're going the other way, though. Paul, the second way we know that we are living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ is courage, not being frightened by our opponents. The third and final way we know that we are living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ is suffering. The third way we know we're living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ is suffering. Follow along in verse 29, 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in him, but also to, what? Suffer for him. Since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. It has been granted to you. It has been, that word is the word gift. The word gift is in there. It has been gifted to you. It is literally a gift from Christ that you not just believe in him. We love talking about that, right? Well, it's a gift from Christ that we have faith in him. But what, what, uh, it, what else does it say? But also to suffer for him. Now, this is, not a, uh, this is not a generic type of suffering. This is not a disease or a um, um, uh, natural disaster or just a generic type of suffering that Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about specific suffering for Christ, viewing it as a gift. How do we view suffering in our lives? When we actually are oppressed in some ways because of our faith in Christ, because we believe that the gospel transcends all categories of our hearts, how do we respond? Do we view it as, a, as an obstacle? Do we view it as something to be avoided? 
Do we try to, to, to fill and, and uh, run away from the suffering and fill it with other things at all costs? Because Paul says that to suffer is actually a gift from Christ. Christ himself has given you this gift of suffering. First way we know that we're living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ is through our unity. Second way we know we're living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ is through our courage. And the final way is through our suffering. Now, as I'm saying all of these things to you, you might be sitting here thinking, well, why should I do any of this? Like, like what, what's the, this is, this is insane. This becomes legalism. This becomes another new law if Christ is not worth it. If we don't behold the beauty of Christ, then these calls on our lives are just, are, are just not worth anything. They, they just don't make sense. And so what I want to do these last few minutes is I just want to paint a picture of Christ again. And this is why we're here to gather, is just to, to marvel at Christ, to look at Christ, to see who he is. Christ, is, Christ is, was there from the creation of the world, right? Christ was there at creation. Christ is God. Jesus is God. It says in the scriptures that Jesus is the wisdom of the world. Everything that we know is right, everything that we know is wise, is because of Jesus. It is in and through Jesus that all of us were created. All of us were created in and through and for him. John says that in the beginning was the word. What was the first thing that God did in Genesis 1? He spoke. In the beginning was Jesus. God decided to dwell among us throughout the Old Testament in multiple times at various ways and various times because he wanted the relationship back that we broke. And, and John says that finally Christ is himself the incarnate word. Christ is himself God in the flesh. And as we'll see in a few weeks, Christ did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, right? He didn't say, I have this, and so I'm going to, you guys messed up, and so I'm going to, but out of what he humbled himself, out of love for you. You know that you are more fully known by Christ and more fully loved by Christ than anybody else in the entire world. And that's terrifying, because either we want to be fully known and not full, and we don't think we're going to be fully loved, or we want to be fully loved, but we don't actually believe that we're fully known. And yet Christ looks at us, he knows us, and he says, I know you and I love you. And because of that, he did three things. He humbled himself, he emptied himself, and he became obedient. He emptied himself. He took on the form of a slave, the form of a human. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Not just any death, death on a cross. And when he was death on the cross, multiple things happened, one of which was that he forgave us of our sins. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And on the cross, Christ forgave us of our sins. On the cross, another thing also happened, and that Christ was enthroned. Christ was lifted up as king of a king and lord of lords, but he was lifted up on a cross which is completely upside down. This is why we say the way up is down because to, who in their right mind would say, I'm enthroned and I am actually becoming king of the world by dying? God did not leave him there. God actually vindicated him. It led, Jesus' obedience and suffering for the sake of others led to his salvation, led to his vindication. And God exalted him, raised him from the dead, exalted him above the name and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Yahweh, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This world that we live in is Christ's world. 
It is not something that can be set aside in one part of our heart. It is not something that can be compartmentalized or siloed. And when we think about it, we have certain values and relationships and conversations there. But when we talk about something else, we put that aside, we close that box, we put that hat down, and we put on another hat. We open the, we, Christ is king of the entire world. And we are following him into new creation. And it starts now. It starts now in the way we love each other. It starts now in our unity with each other. It starts now with our forgiveness of each other's sins. It starts now with, with humility. It starts now with courage, knowing that we're not going to be, we have the one thing in this world that will not, we, we cannot lose, that will not break. We stand with courage. We stand with a humble courage. And we treat suffering as a gift from the one true crucified and risen Lord, not as something to be avoided. So I hope that's an encouragement to you. I know it has been for me. And what I want to ask you guys to do right now and this week is just, is just look to Christ. Spurgeon says, if, 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 you don't, if you don't do anything else but look to Christ, you have done everything you need. So I want to pray. I want to take a minute and I want to pray. And I'm just going to ask God to remind us of that. And as we, as we continue in the letter to the Philippians, we'll see over and over again this theme. Next week, we'll see this theme of unity played out. What does it look like to treat each other? The week after that, we are going to look at that Christ hymn, that beautiful hymn that Paul expounds and says, this is the gospel. And then we're going to look at what it plays, plays out in, in different relationships. So Father, Lord, we give you our lives. I ask that you would guard us against the sin of compartmentalizing. I ask that you would forgive us for, of compartmentalizing. I ask that you would forgive us of, of, of taking you and your gospel and making it just another part of our lives. Father, I ask that you would fill us with yourself. You would satisfy the deepest recesses of our hearts so that whether we, whether we suffer or whether we thrive, in whatever situation we're in, we are content because we know that when you are in us, we can do all things, not being frightened by our opponents, not being disunified. We also know, Lord, that you're the only one who can work that in us. So, Father, meet us in this moment. Meet us where we are and call us to yourself. Meet us where we are and call us to yourself and bring us one step closer to you, Lord. We want to look like you. We want to be like you. We want to act like you. We want to live like you. And if we don't, then give us that desire. We pray all these things in your name, in your name, through your name, by your name, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that you have sent for us and you have sent to us. Amen. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Mm-hmm.